All right, we are set for another exciting episode of Nonprofits Radio, which is our inaugural day. This is the kickoff. We're doing back-to-back all day long in both of our studios for Nonprofits Radio. And um, it happens, not happens to, but uh, it, is. it does coincide. We we, it was purpose, intentional, right, right? with um, uh, hashtag Giving Tuesday. And so it's our honor to tell the stories of local community-based nonprofits, the good work that they're doing uh, throughout the community and beyond. Uh, we're going to introduce those in just a minute. We have Michael Moore co-hosting here today alongside myself, Rich Casanova, here in our Pro Business Channel studios, uh, live from our Atlanta Buckhead studio with our billion-dollar uh, view. If you're in the neighborhood, swing on by. Yeah, we may put you on the air. All right. So uh, having said that, we have three great nonprofits. Again, we're going to hear uh, what they're passionate behind, their mission, how you can help support them and give back to their cause and uh, so forth. So, Michael, if you want to introduce all, get to give us a snapshot of all three guests, and then we'll start with our first we'll, interview. We'll, we'll do that. We'll, we'll move by that. Rich, thank you for here on Giving Tuesday. It's exciting to be part of Pro Business Channel. As we said, we're, 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 we're in the inaugural day of our show. We're launching today, and we've got back-to-back-to-back from both studios, so this is going to be pretty exciting. We've got three great guests today, and they represent a, 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 quite, a quite a different um, – uh, array of services, so we're going to get some stuff. We got Michelle Klein and Michelle's Dream on Three, and boy, you're going to get a lot of a lot of information about that. Give you give you the time here. You'll be our first guest this morning. Next, followed up by Carolyn Salvador, who's Executive Director of Enduring Hearts, and uh, we'll get to the, the children's heartstrings there a little bit. Is 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 literally heartstrings. And then lastly, we've got Adili, who's got Serve One. Now, yeah, you're probably just wondering what Serve One means. He's going to serve a lot more than one, though, with what he does. So these are great guests. We've got some great opportunities. So let's kick it off and, and look first off at um, at Michelle. And Michelle, Dream on 3, we've seen you around our town. So you're you're well known throughout the city now with a lot of your projects and stuff as executive director. So the story of Dream on 3 first. Well, um, first of all, thank you for having me here, and we're so excited to be a part of Giving Tuesday. Um, I'm really glad to hear that you've seen us around Atlanta. We are actually new to the Atlanta market, um, only been here since May. Um, Our mission, though, is to make dreams come true for children with chronic illnesses, intellectual and developmental disabilities, or life-altering conditions by creating experiences of joy and magic through the world of sports. So essentially, we make sports dreams come true for a lot of really courageous kids. Now, I know that you're an educator, and you saw a lot of kids who had had opportunity to, to, to be witnessed to by your, by your services, and you're new to the organization to some degree. So tell us a little bit about your backstory, about how you got to this organization and why it's so very special and important to you, and then we'll talk about what you do. Um, absolutely. Um, I am actually a 22-year public educator in the state of North Carolina. Um, I was your high school English teacher that everyone either loved or hated, um, <laughs> and from that went into administration and was a high school um, assistant principal for four years and a high school principal for four years. Um, and you're certainly right that um, – you know, every day um, I had the opportunity to be um, to, to spend time with some wonderful, wonderful children and wonderful kids and really help shape their futures. Um, and I was always very touched by the ones who had to work so much harder and struggle so much more um, with sort of the cards that they had been dealt. Um, so it was always very important to me to be a leader and to create a school of a culture of sort of acceptance of giving and kindness. And so I had an opportunity um, with Dream on Three to actually serve a child at our school where I was principal um, through a program that we called the Junior Dream Team, and it truly was life-changing for me, and that's what kind of took me down this really wonderful path that led me to this new fabulous city and, and getting to meet a lot of great people. Well, let's go back just a moment. You, you talked about being participat- participatory as a principal and taking a child through it. Can you share that experience with us? Can you give us a little detail about what really what that meant from yeah. both sides? Because you could see it 
by someone you knew quite well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it, and it is hard to capture what a truly powerful experience it was. But, you know, Dream on 3 approached our approached our school, and um, we as a school selected a, a young man named Naquan, and Naquan was 17 years old. And um, Naquan was wheelchair-bound and had essentially been born stillborn. Um, mm-hmm. And so as a result of that and, and loss of oxygen and things, um, just had, you know, a plethora of, of disabilities that he struggled with throughout his life. Um, but cognitively, um, very, always in the moment, very much loved life, very much loved, loved people. So um, students at our school really love Naquan, um, but weren't exactly sure how to love Naquan and how to really integrate him into to being a part of our student body. So the things that we learned about Naquan is Naquan was an enormous, um, even being from North Carolina, an enormous Tennessee Titan fan. Um, loved football, <laughs> loved the Tennessee Titans, so really wanted to um, to make that dream come true for him, and also very ironically loves Johnny Cash. So I don't know how many seventeen year old boys love Johnny <laughs> Cash, but but he absolutely does. So a really great great combination. So. Um, we actually selected um, 10 students um, from our student body at the time, and we selected them. Our staff selected them from, you know, all different parts of the student body. So we had people who were a part of our student government. We had people who were a part of our band, people who were on our football team. But then other students who really might not have been a part of any other organizations but definitely had a heart to serve and um, wanted to kind of step up and lead. And so those students um, are really who made Naquan's dream come true. Um, they really came together with a, with our fabulous faculty advisor, who was our, our head counselor, and they planned a campaign of awareness about what, what it's like to be a day, to live a day in Naquan's life, and how Naquan wants you to kind of talk to him in the hallways, and how he really likes fist bumps, and how he likes to fake you out with fist bumps a lot when he, <laughs> when he rolls value in the, in the hallway. Um, and so it was about raising awareness. Um, they planned a couple of fundraisers, one of which was a a, um, a faculty a faculty student talent show, which turned out to be absolutely phenomenal. And then we did a school wide send off where you know we had eighteen hundred students in our gymnasium. Don't tell the fire marshal, but um, <laughs> you know who were all participating. We had a local band from our high school made up of students who played a Johnny Cash song, and um, it was just an, an enormous situation to be able to send Naquan off to his dream. He left in a stretch Hummer limo with um, six motorcycle escort. Oh, um, wow. It was Jeez. just tremendous and VIP. I'll, I'll, yes. Very VIP and almost our whole student body um, was filled with shirts that were dream dream for Naquan shirts. So that was a part of our unity. And um, I, all I can say is I went in my office afterwards and cried for 20 minutes because mm. it was truly just the most cathartic experience um, I have ever had. I mean, it was just powerful and transformative. And it didn't end there. The next no. year, Naquan um, was nominated to be Homecoming King as a senior. <laughs> and, and I'm just going to say I don't think that happened without that kind of experience. And what was even more powerful than that? Two other young men who were also nominated to be Homecoming King came to me and said, if Naquan win, I mean, if I win, I want Naquan to be Homecoming King. I mean, that's just an amazing story. I mean, I can hear the passion. Uh, you were saying you're nervous beforehand going on air, but it's, it, it just comes, it just flows, right? I mean, I'm just I feeling the passion what you guys are doing. It's an amazing story and a mission. I was actually on your site and saw a similar uh, a video. I forget the guy's, the kid's name, but I think he was uh, going to go some kidney transplant or some procedure. And, um, but he got on the bus with uh, Clemson, Clemson, yes, Clemson yes. and then they took him behind the uh, behind the scenes tour. He was in the locker room, met the players and the coaches, and it was just like very emotional. Uh, and it was a surprise to him; he didn't really know that was going to happen that day, right? Yes, um, the, the, the young man you're speaking about is named Brandon, and he's yeah. from South Carolina, and that is 
part of our part of the thrill of our experience is that we try to keep as much of it a surprise as possible. And so he didn't know that day. We showed up at his school with the Clemson bus, um, and he had no idea kind of what was happening. And the same thing with Naquan at our school. Um, he knew that something was going on. Yeah, he had no idea cooking. it was that day. Um, so, yeah, we try to keep yeah, it a big surprise. I, I think I'm going to borrow that in the hallway, the fake fist pump, whatever. Yeah, fake fist pump. <laughs> I'm going to do that, yeah. fake people out. Uh, all right, so, uh, Michelle, it was just amazing hearing your story. Um, we got a couple minutes left on for your segment. So how would folks, uh, how would people find out about your, your mission? How, would, how can they contribute or get involved? Yeah, the, the first thing would be to, as you said, visit our website because, you know, I can, I can share the stories, um, but we have such fabulous videos on our website, and that yeah. really captures what a dream can look like. So it's just www.dreamon3.org. So please visit there. Um, we work with, 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 with children who are referred to us by hospitals like Shepherd Spinal Center and CHOA and Emory Medical Center. One of the main things that we're really trying to do, um, which is kind of where my heart is, is work specifically with schools and high schools. So currently we're working with um, a school in Cobb County, a school in Paulding County, a school in Douglas County, and a school in Forsyth County, and then are about to start two in Cherokee County. So what I would really encourage is if you have a student at a high school and you'd like your student to be a part of this, or you work at a school and you can truly see the value in this, reach out to me because we're looking for some really great schools because not only does this impact that particular child by making a dream come true. As I said, the way that it affects the student leaders and the way that it affects the student body in, in general is, and, is truly magical. And, and we need more of that in our schools, that, that positive ripple Absolutely. effect, right? Absolutely. Well, thanks again. If time permitting, we're going to come back for a roundtable. But uh, Michael, who do we have up uh, uh, next? We'll make sure before us. we drop on Dream On 3, right? Dot. Right, yeah. Dream, DreamOn3.org, yes. All right, catch, catch that. All right, so now we got Carolyn Salvador, who is the Executive Director of Enduring Hearts. So we've now... We've now pulled our heartstrings, but literally the next next uh, guest here is going to be talking about how the heartstrings are changed in children because she works in the pediatric um, transplant arena. So, Carolyn, the story of how you got there I know is interesting. So let's start out there. How did you get to be executive director of this organization? Uh, well, for the past, I'd say, two decades, I've spent my background with children as well. Like Michelle, I was in early education and understanding the impact um, that the first years can have on a children's life and changing their trajectory and um, really was my passion and had worked with early education in the state of Georgia. And Enduring Hearts reached out because they were really trying to do amazing things for children that have had a heart transplant and try to grow the organization and increase the brand. And I was fortunate enough to know someone uh, through my school that invited me to uh, to uh, meet the founders. <laughs> and um, after I heard the founder's story, um, really, you know, my heartstrings were pulled. And Enduring Hearts is a national charity, but it was started here in Marietta from our founders out of an unmet need um, that they discovered when, what I'll say, their seemingly healthy child um, all of a sudden became very ill during a family vacation at Disney. Now, dad was like, you know, she's fine. Just, you know, put some, give her some ibuprofen. You know, she'll be okay. And mom said no. And they ended up taking her to a hospital in Orlando only to find out that she was in heart failure mm. and um, that they needed to get her to Atlanta and that she would probably need a heart transplant for a chance to live. Well, as you can imagine, I don't know if you're a parent, um, but, you know, their world fell apart. And they uh, were not prepared for that. And so they said, okay, a heart transplant, what does that mean? Well, okay, a heart transplant, once she gets one, maybe she'll be cured. 
But what they quickly discovered that a heart transplant really was not a cure. It was more of what we call a bridge to life. The average heart transplant lasts about 12 years. And those aren't always good years. And what we know and what I know coming into this is that, you know, so much of the brain is developed in the first four years of life. So many milestones are met. If a child has heart failure, if they're undergoing procedure after procedure under anesthesia, invasive procedures, harsh immunosuppressants, even with a heart transplant, they're going to have a lot of barriers to face. Well, the founders looked around and said, well, surely someone's going to change this harsh reality for these children. And what they found um, was shocking to them, that there were other organizations, wonderful ones that deal with heart, adult heart, your heart, my heart, but really no one that was solely focused on making a heart transplant last a lifetime. Hmm. So they founded Enduring Hearts. Well, we're seeing so many people now get more cognizant of all the little uh, auxiliary prayers, uh, processes that need to go along with a catastrophic change because just uh, the timing and the opportunity for the ch- children and you were very blessed to be here in the city where you got to you got to step up and be part of so as you uh, go through the process how are children identified i mean obviously there's a it, it, you you start as soon as you can identify a child who needs a heart transplant correct well the identification comes from the transplant right. center and there's a lot of wonderful transplant centers across the united states Um, We've actually, since inception, I think funded research in 28 different transplant institutions across the United States. So we're driving that research. And the research community in that area is pretty small. As you can imagine, you know, there's, again, a lot of adult heart, but not a lot of pediatric heart and heart transplant. So our organization is trying to find those great researchers that are going to unlock the key to what we say is organ rejection, and mm-hmm. that's the problem. But at, but at those early ages, are there symptoms that um, you know indicate that there's a an issue that needs to be identified? That's a good question. Ninety um, percent of um, heart transplants occur because of a congenital heart defect, right. which uh, I don't know if you knew this, but congenital heart defects are the most prevalent right. birth defect, right. impacting about forty thousand children a year. Wow! For some severe ones, the but, mom but, but, actually knows. Um, well, is that obvious out of the get-go or whatever? Well, I mean, how would a parent? Usually, uh, usually <laughs> some for severe ones occur at about 20 weeks of an ultrasound. Uh, okay. Others occur okay. right after they give birth, and you might see a baby turn blue, or they know something in those first checkups. For others, and what we hear sometimes are those athletes that all of a sudden are going through football practice or that have, you know, collapse on the football field, it was they had a heart defect, but they were unaware of it. Yeah. They just think it's a shortness of breath or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, if I don't, oh, go ahead. our founder, actually, their daughter, she was two years old, so they had no idea. So that's when I said seemingly healthy. Um, she had dilated cardiomyopathy. So her heart um, was enlarged, pumping on one side at times of a the nine-year-old, and she was two, but an infection can also cause heart failure right. for children. Yeah, mention the founders, because I believe that's the videos I saw on the, on the website, right? Yes, Madeline and, Patrick Gann. Okay. Um, yeah, because watching those videos, it's it's uh, mind-blowing, right, that, that that age. And uh, I think the, the takeaway I had was that observation that you figure it's transplant, you're good for life. I never yeah. had an, any idea that, that, was, that there is a, uh, a shelf life to that procedure, and they had to do it multiple times. It's, it's a miracle just to happen one time, right? Yeah, well, if you think about a child to get a heart transplant, 
the sad reality of that is that another child had, yeah, had to exactly. die to be able to give them a chance. But most times, um, children really, they might get two transplants in their lifetime. It's not a lot. Yeah. Um, so we really want to make that transplant, that gift of life, last a long time. And the way to do that is through funding innovative research. Let me ask a dumb question. Uh, other organ transplants, is that kind of similar where it does have that uh, you know, lifespan or whatever? Or is that unique to the heart? What's... Each organ has its own kind of lifespan, if you will. However, the one thing that is um, across all is organ rejection. And if you think about it, as soon as we put something in our body that's not ours, our own body starts to fight it. So that's why they have to take these really harsh immunosuppressants. It's almost like a child having to take some type of chemo drug every day to stop their own body from fighting it. And so rejection is the problem. There's, I mean, they're getting hit with both sides, right? They're struggling, but at the same time, they're kind of... um, have another struggle to deal with. Uh, final question. I know, Michael, you got a couple, but um, any medical advancements in this space? I mean, um, is there any kind of news or, or you mentioned some research projects you're, you're working on? Well, there's a lot of news. I think the show would need to be a lot longer for me to go <laughs> okay, through right. it with you and, and pretty technical. Um, they are one of the things that we're working on right now and pretty excited about is they're right, trying to look at ways to identify organ rejection earlier, earlier. because we know earlier is going to help save lives. And there's ways that they could do that without doing a heart biopsy and looking at blood markers and certain sure. cells that are uh, the, the blood marker research has really become a, a profound indicator for a lot of folks. So about how many folks do you serve here in Georgia? Uh, so you mentioned you're nationwide, but in Georgia, your chapter? Well, we are a, nation, we are a nationwide charity. So, I mean, Georgia, we work closely with uh, the Sibley Heart Center and CHOA. So we have a gas card program there as well. And they have had over three or 400 heart transplants um, since they wow. started. But there's thousands of children that are out there that are actually are either waiting Candidates. for a transplant yeah. or that have had a transplant and are in that pipeline. So when you take on a, a client or new, a new transplant patient, do you keep them for a long period, the rest of their life? Do they stay in your system? Well, so our research is actually working to help all transplant mm-hmm. patients. So we're not really working, not working with individuals. one-on-one. What we do work on one-on-one is we have a gas card program for transplant families because what we know is when a child is waiting or being cared for, right. those families, they're going to go to CHOA here in Atlanta, but they may live in Blairsville, and they may have to keep their job. So they're going back and forth. Right. So we have a Road to Recovery gas card program that helps mitigate some of those costs for families. So what can listeners out there that are doing hashtag Giving Tuesday? What can we do for you? Oh, well, thank you. You know, one, please go to donateheart.org and support, <laughs> you know, innovative, crucial research. Um, if you'd like to check us out, you can go to enduringhearts.org and uh, see what we're about. But we appreciate your time, and thank you for having me. Well, we have to heard. do a quick shout-out to Thomas uh, Smith. So he helped uh, connect us. Uh, he's He's been in the studio a number of times. So have you known him for a while as well? Or uh, Yeah, I love Thomas. He's Thomas, a great guy. He's been working with the charity for a long time. He's, awesome. he's got a big heart. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> no pun, yeah. Oh. Pun intended, yeah. But no, he's a great guy. He's been in the studio a number of times. So I want to do a shout out to him. All right, Michael. All right. So who's up uh, next? All right. So now we have uh, something we just kind of jump outside of the U.S. a little bit. We've got Adili here with us. And Adili is a uh, serve1.org. And yeah, he's excited about how he delivers his products, which is really the key. Internationally. Here, right? Yes, sir. So we, uh, we started 18 years ago. And it's just been amazing, uh, the impact we get to do all around the world. Uh, we just did 2.2 million meals uh, in Africa just this year. And so it's just amazing that we're able to go to some of the most remote villages, remote places um, around the world, and especially in Kenya. 
and be a part of just uh, giving relief food to those communities. Most of those communities that we uh, work in don't have a food pantry, don't have anybody else showing up. So the food that we get to deliver is literally a lifeline for uh, most of those communities that we get to serve around the world. So the mechanics of getting food from here to Kenya serve one means I'm going to get one meal all the way to Kenya. You've got to do some economies of scale here to make that work better. So tell us a little bit about the organization, how it does get through all the I'm sure red tape as well as miles. Yes. So in the past, we used to ship most of our food from Texas all the way to Kenya. And that took months to do that. And we still do that because the amount of food that we try to deliver is just a lot. Uh, But what we started doing is we started working with farmers in the communities in in Kenya, in Uganda, in Tanzania, in Africa, in different parts of Africa to help us with with, uh, supplying the product, uh, which we are, as per right now, the only people that I know that are doing that. So we we provide. We produce most of our food now in Kenya, for Kenya, uh, just from different parts of the country that are not going through the drought. And we're able to deliver this to communities that are not on the map, communities that um, I grew up in Kenya, communities that you can ask a Kenyan. They're like, I have no idea (laughs) where that place is. No roads, uh, so no infrastructure. And uh, we just get to deliver this through different uh, methods, bicycles, you know, you name it. We drop the food wherever we need to do. So are you delivering literally individually to families in villages? How do people get qualified or become part of or experience your program. So the cool thing is that we stand out. Showing up with a Land Rover in the middle of the desert, sure. y- you'll, you'll get a big crowd right right away. So we don't have a hard time getting people to show up. In pl- uh, but most places we work with, we work with communities, uh, with churches in the, in the community. We work with uh, schools in the community. And so that kind of makes us have a base in that neighborhood, in that village. And so when we show up, our partners, who most of our uh, partners work in different parts of the world, uh, we, we communicate with them, letting them know we have a shipment of food coming this morning right out in the parking lot uh we got fifty thousand meals uh to mombasa Kenya. Here. so wow. it's just amazing so right out of the parking i came in early and i just got a text message that we're doing fifty thousand meals and so it's, it's an all-day thing uh some of the food is not only coming in different parts of the world uh some places are not uh, allowed to share because of sensitivity of where the food is going uh, some of the governments do not allow uh, foreign nonprofits to work in these in this places, but we are able to get our food to the right people in this neighborhood. So you're living pepper squash and a chicken breast? What, what does this food look like? <laughs> yeah. So um, so coming from uh, growing up in Kenya, so most of the time when we receive uh, uh, the food, it was either a corn, and there was really nothing to it. So, uh, as much as it was very helpful, and, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to take away from the fact it really saved lives. There's no nutritious value to it. And so, what our food does is we've worked with this company in te- Texas to really come up with a meal that gives all these kids nutrients that they need to survive. Uh, and so, um, we work with them, and we have all the scientific research that we have done on these meals. And uh, so, we get it uh, permitted by the country to use in the community and you could tell the difference between the kids that take our food and the kids in the community who we, we at, mo- at the moment we cannot reach because of lack of resources so these are like prepared foods that are add water 
That's, that that's had pretty much it. Add, add water right. and, and, and that's it. And, uh, you know, so just a little bit of my background. Uh, in the early 90s, uh, I was, you know, my family moved to, to the remote village of Turkana. Um, and I was... Can you spot that on the map for us? Give us a quiz. Turkana. <laughs> that's be, off the grid or whatever. Yeah. grid. <laughs> right. And um, I was part of something that I had no idea was, uh, was a life-changing moment in history where thousands of kids were uh, walking from... Sudan, which those kids, we know, now mm-hmm. know them as the Lost no, Boys of boys. Sudan. And I remember uh, me and my dad standing, seeing a massive cloud and kids younger than me just walking. And they'd been walking for, uh, for days, uh, some of them for weeks, and they were asked to follow the sun. And then when they got there, um, we had to make some calls within the United Nation and all these different places to, to, to provide them with meals. But that moment there changed my life forever. And, uh, and so now I get a chance to not just uh, provide food to the kids in, in Turkana, but even here in America, you know, I, you know we get to do the same thing. Uh, probably not to the same degree as we do in, in overseas, but we just get to see the impact of knocking on a door and providing a family with a meal. So how did how did you you get on the on the U.S. side or the other side? Is this organization founded here now, or founded in Africa, or how did you get involved? So the organization is founded here in Atlanta, and so and that, and that's the, the cool part. And so we're able to really get our name out there, communicate with the right people in the in the community. Uh, but most of our distribution is done in Africa. You know, it's done overseas. And so I came to America 11 years ago for the first time and got part of, be part of uh, the community in America. Got to learn so much. Um, ended up going through theology school and I'm an ordained pastor and uh, after that I wanted to find a way to be able to give back to you know uh, something that had changed my life so much I have also a history of being a teacher it's, it's kind of cool that it's all teachers here today so before coming to America I used to be a primary school teacher uh, that's what we call it there and so I just was trying to find a way where I can make an impact I have this saying that you know a lot of people walk this world but I want to live a, foot, a footprint and so I you know Serve International was doing that in my community the kids that we get to 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 reach are not just statistics to me. They're they're kids that I I could be that kid. I could be one of those people in those pictures that we get to serve overseas. Man, I could listen to this guy all day. He's like the Joseki's man of uh, <laughs> today, whatever. Right? I mean, in eleven years, wow, it makes me look like a slacker. All the stuff you've done, <laughs> whatever. Wow. Um, so it's just I'm just trying to visualize. I think as many of our listeners are this just whole premise that is so foreign to us that you're in a community serving where there's no roads. Right? I mean, there's no internet, so how do you communicate? I mean, how do you get the word out that, hey, we're going to arrive next week with the food is arriving? I mean, it, it's probably like the channel of conversation through all of their natural uh, connections and, you know, um, conversations, right? Yes, and, and so if you're trying to find directions to a place, this is kind of how it sounds. You're going to go over the mountain, <laughs> you're going to find a, a tree, you're going to turn left on the tree, and it's really, there's nothing wow. there. And in fact, j- just a tree is a sign of uh, of life, life right. of yeah. life in that place. So it's just amazing that, uh, you know, we get to serve them, we get to go there and make a difference and impact, and it's, it's just beautiful to see. I mean, it's not like you point. can use Uber Eats there or anything, right? You know, there's no like delivery. Yeah. But I, I get, for so no words. I got one word for you. Drones. Yeah. Just maybe. Right. No. Just have those uh, deliver to that community. I love it. Love that right. idea. Well, yeah. Then you've got to have the cell phone to bring them in with. Uh, but lastly, you're you're in this business long term. Yes, we are. But uh, my, my, my vision, some, you know, I, I get to people ask me the question all the time. What's what's the end goal here? Uh, I, I'm a big dreamer. You know, I, I believe there's a time I, I believe we can end 
uh, hunger around the world. I believe that it's kind of crazy that in 2018 we're still doing this. I believe that we have the ability, uh, not just in America, around the world, to to make this you know not a problem at all. And so my my vision would be uh, not just to go and deliver food, but to create systems that communities that live in the desert, communities that live here in Atlanta. You know, we have people in Atlanta here starving too. Absolutely. You know, kind of find a solution to end all this. So I would love to see in my lifetime uh, that I would hate to, I, you know what, I want to get fired because there's no job to do. There's no food to deliver. <laughs> yeah. That's my goal. So what, what, is, what is your official function with the organization today? They got some fancy name for me. They call me chief, di- whatever, but here's my chief thing. Di- chief so, development officer. All right, so but I'm chi- a storyteller. I love to yeah. All right, So the story is you're a chief development officer and they need a little bit more money. I'm sure to do and deliver one more food. Yeah, a little bit more food. So, so yeah, how can people? What, what help? are we looking for? What's next in terms of growth of the organization, and, and what can we do to help you? So our goal for t- uh, next year is, is four million meals, and, and that's kind of our target goal. We we want to we want to get 18 villages uh, just covered. We we don't want to have one kid die because they didn't get a meal. That's our goal for next year. And to be able to do that, we're doing everything we can. We're talking to people. And so today, if you're listening to this, you can go to our website, search. International and and see how you can be a part of it. You know, it, it doesn't take a lot to make a difference. You know, you might be listening to this thinking you got to be a millionaire to make a difference. If you go to our website right now, you'll find out with very little, with very little, you can make an impact around the world. Well, I mean, that's kind of similar to Tony Robbins' uh, story. You know, we're just celebrated Thanksgiving, um, and he was inspired along the same thing. Of he found families here uh, in his neighborhood that were not. Uh, were without food Thanksgiving and one man just stepped up and, and started a movement and now they're they're serving like tens of millions of meals would rate so uh, we just actually we got a couple of extra minutes here so I'm going to turn it over to the panel and so maybe y'all might have a question amongst yourselves to, as a follow-up question based on what you heard of the uh, your counterparts uh, stories um, so again I mean this is just fascinating this is an Atlanta-based international organization that is helping uh you know people in need around the world it's very inspiring uh so your goal is four million uh, four million meals, meals in yes. 18 villages yeah yes all right so michael uh let's open up to a panel and um uh any questions amongst well, it, se- it seems like we have some fun relationships here with part of this group so i know we've made some new friends here but what are, what are your thoughts about giving tuesday today what's yeah. what's out there in the marketplace for you and well, thank you, Michael. Um, it was really awesome for me to listen and get to meet both of you and hear. And I, I hope that the listeners, um, you know, are inspired by you know, our stories. Nonprofits in the community provide just amazing service. And without these nonprofits, there would be hungry children. There would be children that wouldn't get a wish. There would be children that wouldn't have a hope for a better tomorrow. So Giving Tuesday really highlights that and the need for support. So, um, you know, we just encourage all the listeners to get out there and support their nonprofits today. Pick, pick something and, and get involved, right? That's, that's one of the keys. That's very well said. Pick something and get involved. Giving yeah. Tuesday. Michelle? Yeah, I would I would just echo that and particularly what Adili said that your vision is that one person can make a difference and I think that's why we're all sitting in these chairs today and that's what we hope you all understand. You can make a difference um, in so many different ways. Our organizations obviously have a lot to offer. There are lots of other ones, but visit our websites, volunteer, make a donation. There's so make a connection. Like that's one yeah. of the things that I need, and probably you guys do too. But you can make a difference um, in in a very small but very meaningful way. 
Well, I know at least three people who are making a significant difference. So thank you so much for being here today on Giving Tuesday. Rich, what we got? Uh, yeah, that wraps up another episode. Uh, today, all day, we're broadcasting for an honor and coinciding with a hashtag Giving Tuesday. And you can, if you're into hashtags, go ahead and hashtag Pro Business Channel. You can hashtag Nonprofits Radio, which is NPR. Just don't tell the other NPR or whatever. Yeah, right. But I think they're okay with it. Yeah, if we're doing good work for nonprofits. Uh, and again, on behalf of Michael Moore, Rich Casanova here, I want to thank all of our guests here for being in the studio and stay tuned for our next episode of Nonprofits Radio up next.